Our reading for this morning will be out of Acts 4, so if you could find that and then stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, that's Acts 4, verses 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation, uh, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that, this, you know, that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that, is a notable sign, or, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more uh, to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. So it's hard to argue that we live in one of the most anti-authority ages in Western history. Authority isn't trusted, it's not listened to, it's not cared about. Submission is a swear word. Uh, We can see this in a lot of our movies in which consistently the the child hero is the one who gets it. They really understand. And the parents or the authorities are are the dull, dim-witted, stupid ones. In fact, the, the plot, how it normally plays out is that the child hero saves the day by disobeying to their parents, not actually obeying them. Again, teaching us the lesson that we are not to trust or obey authority. And while this is definitely an increasing trend of late, it's not necessarily a new thing. Ever since Adam and Eve 
humanity has rejected the authority, the one authority, namely God, that we don't want to obey God's law. We don't want to listen to him. And this is, to this day, my problem, and this is your problem. Even as Christians, apart from the grace of God, we don't want to listen to God. We don't want to submit to his authority. And yet, an acknowledgement of and submission to the authority of God is natural to us, certainly as creatures, for we are dependent on him, but certainly even more than that as Christians. And so the Bible is pro-authority and it's pro-submission. And we'll talk about both of those things tonight as they relate to Christ. Specifically, talk about, about Christ having exclusive authority, both to demand submission and to grant salvation. And then on the other hand, how mankind responds to that authority, either by continuing ongoing rebellion or willful submission to him. And so this is our second of third weeks going through Acts 3 and 4, this one unit of thought. But zooming out a bit more to what we've done in Acts overall, there's been remarkably little opposition to the spread of the gospel. That in Acts 1, Jesus commanded his apostles before he ascended that they were to go and witness to his resurrection in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that begin to play out without really much pushback, right? Peter preached in Acts 2, this sermon, and 3,000 were saved. And those 3,000 were marked by fellowship, joyful fellowship, and submission to the apostles' teaching. And then last week in Acts 3, we talked about uh, the second sermon from Peter, in which he talked about the prophet that they must listen to, which is Jesus. And we see in verse 4 here that thousands more were saved. And yet, here in Acts 4, we see the first opposition to the message. We see the first instance of a group of people actually not want this message of a resurrected Christ to spread. We see, actually, that it's the exact same people that oppose Jesus in Luke. And so we pick it up in verse 1. We read, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And so as Peter and John are teaching the people, the chief priests and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, come and they arrest them. They're greatly annoyed. This is beyond just a simple annoyance. They're, they're furious, right, that Christ is being preached. And specifically, they hate that the apostles are even teaching the people anything. And the second thing that they hate, that they're furious about, is that they're preaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so we'll get back to that, put a pin in it later on, as far as their rationale for opposing the message. But for now, we see, okay, opposition, pushback. And so we see then in verse 5, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And so these are verses that we are tempted normally to skip over or skim, right? This is the, the context that Luke is setting up, and it's just a list of names, right? And 
in our flesh, we're prone, all right, just move past that and get to the, the meat of the passage. But we can't miss this. Luke is setting something up here. He's setting up a showdown. See, we have the rulers, the elders, the scribes, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, the whole high priestly family. These eight groups or names have been gathered together to oppose the message. This is, this is the religious leaders of the day, the authorities. And they have come because they want to stop Peter and John from preaching. And so we see this showdown come up. Who will the people listen to? Will it be these eight groups or names that are listed out, this relative army of men? Or will it be the one name that Peter will talk about in a sec, the name of Jesus? And we can't miss the significance of this. Again, these are the religious authorities of the day. These are the people who, whose words were almost viewed as law, God's law, in the eyes of the Jewish people. And so this question, whom should they listen to, who has authority, the human religious leaders or this prophet, Jesus, is a big question. It matters. Who will the people listen to? And so we have to acknowledge that Peter's response then in verse 8 is striking. It's odd because he opposes the religious leaders. He says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And so Peter's response is clear, doesn't mince words, that the same man that they crucified in a sham trial, the same man that they rejected, he is the man who has healed the lame beggar from chapter 3. That he's not scared, he doesn't dance around the issue, he says it plainly, that Jesus Christ has done this. And now this raises, though, an interesting question, that what does Peter mean by the name of Christ? when he says that in verse 10. Um, what we shouldn't think of is that the verbal enunciation of Jesus somehow has done this miracle. That's similar to some systems of maybe magic or manipulation, that the actual enunciation of a name, verbally saying a name, is what has healed this man. If any of you have read Harry Potter, this is similar to how the characters treat Voldemort, right? They're so scared of him that and they think that actually just saying his name will have such bad, tangible repercussions that they actually say, he who must not be named. They're so scared to actually just verbally enunciate his name that they refuse to say it because they think, oh, if we, we say it, there's going to be some sort of power, some sort of bad thing that happens. That's not what is happening here. When the religious leaders in verse 7 say, by what name have you done this? And the apostles say, by the name of Jesus, they're pointing to the essence of the person, the name, or in this case, the authority of Christ. They're really pointing to Christ himself. Similar when in the Old Testament it says, we are saved by the name of the Lord. Well, we're not saved by the name of the Lord, just the verbalization. We're saved by the Lord. And so here we see they're saying Jesus Christ has done this. And so Peter is insinuating two things when he says that. First of all, he's saying that Christ has resurrected. 
that he's no longer in the grave. A dead man cannot heal anyone. A dead man can't save anyone. And so he's very clearly saying, if the name of Jesus has done this, Christ has resurrected. And the second thing then, if, if Christ is resurrected, then that validates the sign and the message behind the sign. So in the, in the book of Acts, we'll see multiple instances in which signs and wonders are worked by God through the apostles. And similar to the book of Luke, these signs and wonders are not just random things, right? They're not just done to show that God is powerful, though he is. These signs and wonders point to the message behind the sign. And so when Peter heals this man, it is for the purpose of pointing to his message behind it, that Christ is resurrected, that he is Lord, and that he is to be listened to. And so Peter further goes on to clarify that message in verse 11 and 12, namely that Christ is the Messiah and he is the cornerstone. He says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter's quoting Psalm 118.22 here, what we read in the pastoral prayer. It's a verse that's often quoted in reference to the Messiah, in which the promised Messiah is the cornerstone that builds up the people of God. He is their foundation, right? He is the one they rely on. Except in this instance, the builders, which are the religious leaders, they've rejected the stone. And in this case, they've rejected him by putting him to death. And yet Christ has overcome death, and he remains the cornerstone for the people of God, the church. But what's interesting about their reference to Psalm 118 is this is not the first time in Luke's two books this has been referenced, and this is not the first time... Uh, the religious leaders have heard this exact reference. And so if you'll turn with me over to, to Luke 20, we can see this. So as you turn there, the context in Luke 20 is Jesus is telling the people and the scribes and the chief priests this parable of these wicked tenants, right? Where this man plants a vineyard and he lends it out to these tenants and when harvest comes, he, he comes and expects to collect rent, expect to, to collect the fruit of the vineyard. And so he sends his servants, and the servants beat up and send, or the, the tenants, excuse me, beat up and send away the servants. And so this happens time and time again, and finally the man says, okay, I will send my son to them. Surely they will respect my son. And yet the tenants see the son in, in a state of other foolishness, say, oh, this is the heir. If we kill him too, if we kill him, we'll, we'll somehow get the inheritance. And so they kill him and send him away. And so we'll pick it up then in verse 15 of chapter 20. We read, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyards do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. And so the scribes and the chief priests are told explicitly in this parable by Jesus, that he is the cornerstone. 
he is the promised Messiah. And yet, they also know explicitly, as it said in that last verse, that he is talking about them in this parable. They are the wicked tenants. They are the ones doing this foolish thing of rejecting the very cornerstone that they are to build upon. And so, going back to Acts, we have to understand that this is happening only a couple months after this interaction from Luke 20. That these are most likely the exact same chief priests and scribes hearing the exact same verse applied in the exact same way to Jesus. And we see the kindness of our God in giving them yet another chance to repent and believe in him as Messiah. That our Lord is a God of second, third, fourth chances. That though they're the very ones that have sent Jesus to be crucified, he sends the message to them again through Jesus' apostles. First, offering them salvation again if only they would repent. And so we see the heart of our God. That though we, all of us, have rejected him, we've all gone our own way, he continues to pursue us. He continues to offer salvation. That there's no limit to his grace. That even if you have rejected him time and time again, he does continue to open up his hand and offer truth. And so how they respond, these religious leaders, is important, for they have been told yet again that Christ is the Messiah. And this is further accentuated by verse 12, in which Peter says that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God has given Christ the sole authority to save sinners, that as Peter talks about in chapter 3, it is through repentance that this man has been healed. It is through faith in Christ that this man has been healed. And so Peter's statement here is a declaration of the exclusive authority of Jesus Christ to say that there is no other means by which mankind can be cleansed from our filth and from our sin other than Jesus Christ. Christ. And that has always been the case from the beginning to the end of the Bible. And that hope in the Messiah, whether you're an Israelite, whether you're living in 100 AD or whether you're living today, hope in the Messiah is the only means of our salvation. And the Lord has labored to show this, that there is one way, one means of being saved. That in Genesis 3, there is one seed of the woman that we are to hope in. That there is one temple in which God dwells with man. There's one sacrificial system through which he communicates cleanliness from our filth. That there's one Davidic king who brings about the eternal kingdom. I think Isaiah is, is explicit. He says, I, I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no savior. That there's no other means of salvation. There's no other mediator for humanity. And Jesus Christ claims to be that one path. He says, I am the way, not a way, but the way. That far from being restrictive, though, that Jesus is the only way, this is a joyous thing for us as humans because God did not have to send any way. He did not have to send his son to be the means by which we are saved. That all our lives, all of humanity has rejected him, wanted nothing to do with him. They have not listened to his commands. And yet he still sends Jesus to be our salvation if only we would believe in him. That this is not a restrictive thing. This is a joyous thing. 
And so humanity, just like the religious leaders, has a choice. Will humanity accept the exclusive but generous, overly generous offer of salvation through Christ alone, or will they reject him and go their own way? And we are, we are so prone to object to this exclusivity of Jesus. How many times have you heard this reality that really there's one God just called by different names and all these different religions and philosophies are simply different paths, different trails up to this one mountain to get to the same God. That humanity can pick and choose whatever trail they want, whatever way to this universal generic God they can follow. And yet God's word does not stand for that. God decides the means of engagement with humanity. He decrees what is right, what is authoritative, what is moral. He decrees what sin is, how we are atoned for. And he's decreed that he cannot be reached by us trudging up a mountain. No one is holy enough to approach his holy hill. He is too good, too perfect. So no religion, no path, there's not a trail up this mountain. What he's decreed is that he will send his son down the mountain to save sinful man. And his son will put us on his back and carry us up. That he is the only means of us ascending to his holy hill. And yet the objections, though, they go further. Okay, fine, maybe other religions and philosophies don't necessarily say, but what about the person who has never heard the name of Jesus and he looks around at creation and he says, there certainly must be a God, and I want to serve this God. And so he goes on to live a, what externally seems like a good moral life. Certainly there's grace for him, right? However, again, that flies in the face of the exclusive authority of Christ as the salvation grantor. How can what Paul says be true, that faith comes through hearing, how can what Peter says be true that there is only one name that saves if someone has not heard that name? That is, only through the hearing of the name of Jesus, the hearing of the gospel, can salvation be granted. That there is no one in heaven who will boast in any other name but Christ alone. And so if someone has not heard the name of Jesus, by definition, they cannot enter into heaven because he is the only means by which that takes place. And so these objections that we have, that we hear about, fall flat. That Jesus is the generous and sole means by which humanity can receive salvation from the Lord. Many of you know I like history, specifically World War II. And at the beginning of World War II, um, the Germans had surrounded about 300,000 British and French troops on the northern coast of France at a port called Dunkirk. Uh, there's a movie made on this recently. But basically, these troops were surrounded, being bombarded, facing sure death. They're trapped against the ocean. And so the British government, it's 300,000 troops. They're very valuable. Britain might not have survived the war against Germany without these men. They commandeer almost every single boat on the southeast coast of England to make the journey across the English Channel, the body of water separating Britain and France, to rescue these men. And there's, there's Navy vessels, but there's pleasure yachts, there's fishing boats, animal transportation vessels. It is this odd collection of anything that can float that they go and send to rescue these troops. And somehow they pull it off. 
Almost every single one of those 300,000 men are brought safely over to Britain. And you'd have to what, ask yourself, how comical would it be for a soldier at Dunkirk to see one of those animal transportation vessels and say, I'll pass. I'm, I'm a captain. I'm, I'm above sailing on some sort of civilian boat. Or I'll wait for the official Navy and Air Force to pick me up. No, the, the soldiers know they were facing certain death from the Germans. They were happy to get onto any boat. They were joyous. And far from sending a dingy vessel to us, the father sent his son, his beloved son, with whom he is infinitely and eternally happy with. The most cherished, perfect being in all of existence, who has not been created or made, has been sent to us for us to receive salvation. Because we, like the soldiers, face certain destruction, but we, unlike the soldiers, have no intrinsic value that makes us worthy or deserving to be saved, and yet the Father has sent his Son anyway. <clears throat> Far from being an objectionable thing, the exclusive authority of Christ is a joyous thing. Humanity should be clamoring over each other to touch and reach and believe on Jesus Christ. And so I'd ask, do you know him? Have you repented and put your faith in him as Lord and Savior? Have you abandoned your own way of living and submitted to his authority? You have to seriously consider these questions because his salvation is free. He offers all food and drink freely without price, without payment, that you don't have to clean yourself up as if you could to approach him. You don't have to learn enough religious knowledge before you can accept him. All he asks is to repent and believe on him as Lord and Savior. And if you have not done that today, I would urge you, do not delay. Don't keep kicking the decision down the road thinking, I can get to that when I'm 30, or I can get to that when I'm 35. You don't know how long your life will be. You don't know how long until you, like the Pharisees, because you have continually heard the gospel and rejected it, will have a hardened heart. And no matter what evidence is presented to you, you will reject it. And so I urge you, be reconciled to God. He offers his salvation freely. And so we see the exclusive authority of Jesus Christ. So then the question is, how will the religious leaders respond? And so we'll pick it up again in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they, had, they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so with the remainder of our time, we're going to see two responses to the authority of Christ. And this is the first one, the bad response. We see here that the Pharisees cannot does not deny the sign or the healing. That the man who was lame 
was a beggar, is standing before them. His feet that had never worked are somehow working, and he is standing up. So they can't deny the sign. And so instead, they decide to try and deny the message, that they command Peter and John, no more speak or teach in the name of Jesus. That the healing, they can handle that, but it's the message they don't want getting out. They don't want the reality that a resurrected Christ is reigning and ruling on high to go out to the people. And this goes back, as far as the reason for this, back to verse 2. First, they don't want the apostles teaching the people anything. In their pride and their desire to be the authority, the, pe- the people that the Jewish nation listens to, they hate that the apostles are threatening their authority. They hate that the apostles are being listened to instead of them. And secondly, they hate that the resurrection is being preached. They don't believe in it. They don't want to hear it. They even pay off the soldiers who saw the angels at the tomb, bribing them in order to hide this reality. Because if Christ is resurrected, everyone else along with them might actually have to listen to him. And so we see that the prophet Peter talked about in chapter 3, the prophet talked about in Deuteronomy by Moses that would come to the Jewish people specifically, that would be the one that would bring truth to them that they are to listen to, the religious leaders, the knowledgeable ones of the day, reject the prophet because they reject the prophet's apostles. And how representative this is of humanity. Like we said at the beginning, we hate submission. We hate the reality that Christ is king and we must submit to him. And we can see this again from the beginning, that Adam and Eve did not want to submit to the Lord, that Abraham did not submit to God. He tried to bring about the promised seed by his own means through Hagar, that Moses did not want to submit to God. He struck the rock instead of talking to it. And these are saints that cannot and struggle to submit to God. How much more for non-believers do they hate his authority? And this is apparent because the signs are clear here, right? That, as we've said, the lame beggar is standing before them. You can't deny that. It's not an intellectual issue or an emotional issue. It's an authority issue. They just don't want to accept Christ being Lord. And this pattern continues today, that many people give objections to the authority of Christ as king. But yet they say their hurdles in believing in him are intellectual. That, oh, the historicity of Christ or the reliability of the Bible or the the sins that the church has committed, they say, oh, if those intellectual questions that I have are somehow answered, then I'll, I'll believe. I'll be well on my way. I just need someone to give me really good, solid answers to my questions. And for some people, that is actually true. They do have genuine hurdles intellectually that they need answered. However, I would argue that in the vast majority of cases, the true issue is not intellectual or emotional. It's the reality that people don't want to submit to Christ as king. It's an authority issue that they don't want to give up their perceived authority to do whatever they think and feel. Because if Christ has resurrected, if Christ is king, they can't go about living the sinful lives they want to live. That they would actually have to change their lifestyle. That if Christ is the living Lord, they can't go about doing whatever they feel. And so they hide this under 
intellectual hurdles or questions, but in reality, it's an authority issue. And so I commend you in your evangelism, don't be distracted. Let the main thing be the main thing, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that he is Lord over all the earth, and that he demands submission. And then ask these questions. What do you think that means that Jesus is Lord? What do you think it means that he is called to submission? Because if you do this, they, they will be confronted with the reality that they have actually just rejected his lordship. They do not want to obey. And hopefully if that happens, then you can share, well, well guess what? Christ has died for your inability to fully submit and perfectly submit. And he has washed your sins away. And then salvation will hopefully come. And so keep the main thing the main thing. And that is the authority of Christ. And I think the, the second interesting thing about this passage, their, their bad response, is what they tell the apostles to do in verse 17 and 18. They say, speak no more to anyone in this name. And they charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so notice what is going on here. Notice what they're telling them not to do. Do not talk about Jesus. Again, the healing, not a big deal. We can handle that. They just do not want the apostles talking about Jesus Christ. They don't want that name, that message spreading. And such is the thing biblically and historically where the enemies of God's people, anyone who is not a believer, there's no neutrality. We've talked about this a lot, right? It is either you are a friend of God or an enemy of God. The enemies of God's people do not want the message, the gospel, his name to spread. They do not want the reality that he is the only and free offer of salvation to all people to spread. They don't want the reality that he is king and demands submission to spread. They are opposed to the message. We see this in, with Israel, where when they intermarry with the Canaanites and the nations around them, they don't stop worshiping Yahweh. They just add to Yahweh all these other gods that they syncretize or combine him with these other gods, that the sole claim of deity of Yahweh is filtered down and washed away, and he's just added to all the Canaanite gods. In, in early church history, when Rome was persecuting the church, one of the things that they most hated about the Christians is that the Christians would not say Caesar is Lord. And so they tortured them, they killed them, in an attempt to, say, to get them to say that Caesar is Lord. Notice what they aren't saying. They aren't telling the Christians to say Jesus is not Lord, but they just want to make Jesus watered down and similar to their other gods, the pantheon. They want to say, no, he's not exclusive. He's just like everyone else. And this continues to go on today. That the fact that Jesus Christ has the sole authority to save and no one else, and the fact that Jesus Christ has the sole authority to call you and every person on this earth to submit and no one else, that is opposed. Feel free to preach about most social issues, moral issues. Feel free to preach about social programs and helping the poor. Feel free to give feel-good self-help messages, but don't dare talk about the Lordship of Christ. Don't dare talk about a God that actually calls all people everywhere to submit. That is unacceptable to the enemies of God's people. And so we conclude that just like then, 
So it will be now that the enemies of the church will try to change the church's mission and message. That Rua Church, we will be pressured to not preach the gospel and the authority of Christ. That he is to be repented of our sins before, that he is to be believed on, that he is to be obeyed. There will be influences that will try to get us to stop preaching that. And that can come from without, and it can also, as is happening here, come from within the people of God. And it's not always overt. It can look like small comments, like, oh, we want to make sure we're being welcoming, so let's not be as firm on truth. Or, man, we really want to be well-liked by outsiders, so maybe we should just lay off the hard topics like submission and wait until people bring that up themselves. They want to change the message where the true gospel, a gospel that, that gives bad news first in order to bring us to the best news, they want to trace, replace that with a false gospel that says you are fine the way you are. You don't need to change. However you feel is fine. And at the end of the day, that is because they don't want a Jesus that actually requires anything of them. That a feel-good Jesus, a Jesus that is completely affirming, a Jesus that helps them live a better life, that Jesus will not be opposed or rejected. But a Jesus that actually demands submission can't be stood for. And so the outside world influences the church's message. Then instead of the church calling the world to bend the knee to Christ, somewhere along the way we have decided that perceived kindness is more important than what Christ says about marriage that is between one man and one woman, that perceived kindness is better than what Christ says about divorce, that it is an abomination, that somewhere along the way, instead of calling the world to bend the knee to Christ, the world has infiltrated the church, and the church has bent the knee to culture. And you too, Christian, will be under that same pressure. That your employer will point to the employee handbook and say, you can't share the gospel here. That your professional association will say that it's unethical or unprofessional to enforce your views on other people. Even your family might say that, hey, we, we just want to make sure everyone's comfortable, and so you shouldn't be as, as bold, you shouldn't be as clear. Right? Again, the enemies of God's people do not want the message to spread. And the, the simple question, though, we ask is, who do they think they are? Who do they think they are that they can tell God's people when and with whom they can share the gospel? That these earthly authorities and influences in your life have no right, no right at all, to tell you that you can't share the good news of salvation to any and all who would hear it. That it is God alone who grants this right. That yes, it is our responsibility as Christians to share the gospel, but it is also our right given to us by God that no one can take from us. And so any earthly authority that tries to enforce a law that makes you as a Christian do something that the Lord has commanded you not to do, or as more often the case, any law that tries to get you as a Christian to not do what the Lord has commanded you to do, those laws are not to be listened to. They are null and void. That we as Christians have a right to obey God first, God over man. 
Because the issue that was at stake in Acts 4 and is the issue today is, is Christ Lord or is he not? And if he is, we as Christians need to talk and act like it. And if he is, non-believers need to hear about it and repent. And so we'll end with this, these last couple of verses, the, the good response to the authority of Christ. We read in verse 19, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. We saw in the last section the effects of a rejection of the authority of Christ. And we see in our world the bitter fruit that that brings about. That sexual immorality, the killing of babies inside the womb, and the castration of young kids outside of it, rampant fatherlessness, all of these things are because people have not submitted to Christ being Lord. And so we need to understand what we are to do instead of that, because this place we are in in our culture is disgusting. And so we see that in Peter and John's response. They clearly portray the same fight, the same showdown we've been talking about this whole time. Will we listen to the voice of man, or will we listen to the voice of God? Back in Luke 24, near the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus commands his apostles, and he says, in Christ's name, in his name, repentance and forgiveness of sins are to be preached to all nations. That in the name of Christ, all people everywhere are commanded to repent. And so here, when the religious authorities tell the apostles not to preach in the name of Christ, they are directly contradicting the commands of Jesus. And what's so interesting here is that the apostles, where they take this, last week we talked about a lot how, how there was these clear pointers and signs to the divinity, to the deity of Christ in Acts chapter 3. And this is yet another one of them. Because, see, Jesus had commanded his disciples and apostles, preach in my name. And then here they say, is it right to listen to you or God? They're equating the words of Jesus with the words of God, and they have the same authority. And therefore, he must be listened to. And so, in this, we see trust as a form of submission. That as believers, if we are to submit to Jesus, we are to trust him. That trust is saying, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what I am feeling or going through, I am going to put my faith in God, not me. It is saying, I'm not on the throne, I am not authoritative. What I think is right is not always right, but Jesus is. But he's in control, he is king, he is truthful, that trust is a form of submission. And in this, we certainly do have a responsibility to trust in God, that the apostles were threatened. And this was no empty threat, that these are the same people that killed and crucified Jesus. And they could do the same thing to the apostles. And yet they say, we must listen to God, we must trust in Christ. And we too have a responsibility to trust him and bend the knee to him. And yet we also have the joyful opportunity to trust him. How much better 
is it for us as believers to go about our lives knowing what is true, knowing what is right, knowing what is lovely, knowing what is reality, knowing how we are to be saved. Non-believers do not have that. It is a game of guess and check their entire life. Maybe this will work. Oh, I'll listen to this person who's had 30 years of experience on this earth. Or I'll do this thing. And they, they guess, they check. They have no source of truth. And yet we, as believers, have the joy of saying, no, no, God's word, Jesus, what he has said is our source of truth. And we can put our complete faith in him. What a better way of going about life is submission to the lordship of Christ. What a better way to define marriage and the value of human life inside and outside the womb. What a better way to change this culture is submission to Jesus Christ. If you imagine that you are serving a king and this king has come into this land and he has driven out a great evil and he is dispensing justice that is perfect justice, he's making laws that are completely and utterly wise, he cares about his subjects, and he cares about you individually. He has actually called you to be his servant. You would delight to serve that king. And so similarly, we serve the best king, and we can delight to submit to him and trust him as well, certainly in the day-to-day, and also, though, for our salvation. That just like Jesus came and the apostles' message came with signs and wonders and truth, to show the people in that day that they can truly trust that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus can grant forgiveness of sins, that same reality is just as true now as it was 2,000 years ago. And so if you are a Christian and you have submitted to Jesus by putting your faith in him, you can rest assured. You can rest assured that you are truly saved. And so with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you have set your king on your holy hill. You have set Jesus Christ as the sole authority in the land, the name under which everyone is to bow. And Lord, this is the best news ever. This is our hope, this is our life, that Jesus, you are the perfect king, not safe, but good. And we know that you have our best interests at heart and we can trust you. And so, Lord, I pray I pray, Father, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, instill in us a greater trust, a greater reliance, a greater dependence on you, knowing that we will be opposed by the world, we will be hated because you were hated, we will be persecuted because you were persecuted, and yet we will resurrect as you were resurrected, Jesus. We will be victorious in whatever means, in whatever way, in this life you decide, and we will be victorious at the end of the day when we will join you in glory reigning with you in this divine mystery. And so, Lord, please instill and and push this into our heart that we would be willing subjects, preaching and declaring and loving that you are Lord and no one else. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.